I'm going to read this little, hopefully funny and witty and informative intro that I wrote, and then we'll just jump right in. Great. I am thrilled to have as my guest today, Kyle Buchanan, the author of an excellent and brand new book out right now from HarperCollins titled Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, The Wild and True Story of Mad Max Fury Road. Now, listeners of the pod know that I read a lot of making of film and TV books. And I want to say this is among the very, very best. Do yourself a favor, get this book, read it, rewatch Fury Road. You will be better for it. And if you're engaged in any of the creative arts or if your work or your hobbies involves any kind of a process, I think you will also find that this book transcends its already fascinating subject matter and is going to give you a lot of food for thought as to how to maybe try something new in that process. Kyle conducted more than 130 interviews with everyone involved in the making of Fury Road from top line stars like Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy to George Miller, the director. And crucially for a podcast like this one named Full Cast and Crew, seemingly everyone else above and below the line. So what emerges is an incredibly detailed and nuanced rehashing of what was clearly not just an incredible and challenging filmmaking experience for all involved, but what also sounds like a time of great personal and artistic growth, a crucible in which who people thought they were was met in trying times by who they really were, for better and for worse. Now, Charlie's and Tom's quote-unquote feud during filming has gotten the headlines here, but in Kyle's book, you're going to see conflicts like that presented within a contextual framework and with a striking honesty from those stars and others. It's as if the experience of making the film was so transformative that conflicts and shortcomings that the actors and stars might typically want to sweep under the rug are instead honored and they're presented here almost like battle scars from a time when they were afforded a magical opportunity to participate in something truly special and epic. Kyle also writes for the New York Times, including the annual awards season feature, The Projectionist. And he's still a young man, so he's far from the ink-stained wretch sorts of newspaper lifers you'd see in films I personally love, like All the President's Men or Ron Howard's criminally underappreciated The Paper. But he does have newspapering in his blood as he was the editor-in-chief of the Panther Prowler at Newbury High School in Ventura County, California. Kyle, clearly I am plundering the gold that was contained within the recent Ventura County Star article about you and your book. And like all of us movie obsessives, Kyle's movie roots go way back to his formative childhood years, such as when his mother pulled him out of school to go see Jurassic Park. Kyle, you're among your kind here. We see you. We welcome you to the Full Cast and Crew Podcast. Jason, that was great. Do you want to write my book jacket copy? <laughs> sure. When you do your next one, reach out. I'm yes, available. Yes, please do. Yeah. I work cheaply and freely. <laughs> and eloquently. Before we get into all the amazing stories and details from your book, I want to start here because I think that's where my experience with this starts. Do you remember seeing Fury Road for the first time and what was your reaction to it? Oh, yeah. Very much so. I mean, I think that the anticipation of it was an interesting thing because, you know, this is George Miller revisiting uh, a very iconic action franchise. Road Warrior still completely holds up today. But there had been so many rumors that everyone had heard about the movie being troubled. And remember when I first saw the first Comic-Con presentation and that first trailer for it, I thought, well, I mean, 
throw those rumors out the window. I mean, there, there might be truth to them, but whatever this is that's on the screen is incredible and not like anything else. And when I went to see the movie, I just hoped that it would live up to those trailers. And it, it, it just more than did it. It blew me away. It was, you know, I've said it before, but like a literally jaw dropping experience. I think when that, guitar first shot flames uh, you know i felt my jaw unhinged i i just was like wow it feels like this is the sort of movie where anything can happen and that is a major feat given that it is essentially the fourth movie in a franchise that it is an incredibly expensive studio action movie you just don't get those feelings when you watch those sorts of films anymore it, it made me realize that I had been setting the bar too low when I, you know, I mean, there's, there's plenty of superhero movies and action movies that I like uh, that I enjoy, but that aren't pushing it, that aren't giving you that wild uh, knife's edge feeling that Fury Road does. And honestly, there just hasn't been one since. I'm reminded of uh, Steven Soderbergh's comment from your book. He says something like, I don't know how they're not still shooting this movie. And I don't understand how 150 people are dead. I think that's the reaction you have when you first watch Fury Road. I, I, I always categorize movies. There's movies that I remember seeing in the theater. That's one thing, probably rise to that. And then there's movies where I kind of remember where I was sitting in the theater when I saw it. And this is one of those movies because the experience of seeing it for me was so, so singular and as you said, jaw-dropping. I do remember not having much anticipation for it ahead of time. And maybe that's because of either, you know, the fourth film in a franchise, as you said, or so much time passing, not maybe under, you know, like, like the actors themselves, maybe not understanding what we were about to experience. As George Miller says so many times in your book, there's no way to understand what this was going to be until you see the whole thing. And even as a viewer, mm -hmm. I don't think anybody could have been prepared for what we were going to see. Uh, when the movie finally concluded. So in in your book, Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, we get all those fraught moments in high-stakes filmmaking when everything that's so carefully put together collapses. But in the end, all of that struggle and all of that strife is towards the creation of real art, of something worthy and challenging and life-changing for everyone involved. And I say that because I really appreciate that your book isn't a movie isn't a book about a movie gone wrong. Like that's kind of a typical type of movie book to write, you know, the train wreck, like a book I love the devil's candy about the doomed making of bonfire. Yeah. The vanities is one way to tell us a lot about Hollywood. And, uh, and the other way is a book like your book, which is a book to me about triumphing, triumphing over great odds. And was that part of what attracted you to do this book and not to sort of choose the more maybe obvious choice of let's find a great, you know, movie so bad it's good and, and write about the train wreck that created it. I mean, very much so. I love the devil's candy. I love uh, monster by John Gregory Dunn about him and Joan Didion trying to write what they thought was this very uncompromising movie about a troubled newswoman. And then it turns into right. the frothy romance up close and personal. You know, those were two very instructive books for me, just even as I, you know, was still developing my film education, but you know, there uh, it's a tricky thing to even recommend them to people because those mm -hmm. movies are mostly forgotten. If anything is right. keeping the legacy of those movies alive, it's those wonderful books. And I think, you know, what I wanted to see and what I recognized as an opportunity here was to write that same sort of book about just how difficult it is to make a movie. But the end result mm -hmm. is a modern masterpiece. You know, uh, it has it has 
if, if what you're looking for are juicy stories, there are plenty, but I really do think that, the, and if you're, what you're looking for is also just, you know, Mad Max deep dive fandom, it has that too. But I really do think that the main takeaway from the book, um, and I, I think people are responding so I, I can say it somewhat confidently, is what goes into making a movie. And, and, and not only that, but but how many people have mm-hmm. to work on it to get it there. You know, it's so tempting to just describe the whole vision of this movie to George Miller, uh, you know, the writer and director and the main creative mind on this film for so long. But you, I, I think you really do get a sense of just how many other people contribute and how one contribution can change so much of that movie. And also just honestly, mm-hmm. what it's like to be on a set with so many hundreds of people. You know, that's why I was really happy to write this in an oral history format instead of a, you know, a written through format uh, for your listeners who might not know oral histories, you know, where you do the interviews and it's essentially quote after quote after quote with a little bit of interjection here and there from me, but those quotes are living side by side with one another. So you can have a quote from Charlize and then a quote from, uh, you know, a visual effects data wrangler and then uh, a costumer um, and then a set PA and then Tom Hardy. And I think what's good about that format is that if it were a more written through book, you know, inevitably you would be prizing the quotes from the big stars and everybody else would essentially be paraphrased or they'd only get a little bit to say. And I hope that in this format, you really do get a sense of that true full cast and crew experience of just, you know, there are hundreds of people who are making the movie. In fact, they outnumber the famous people and their contributions and their stories and their perspective on what happened on the set of Fury Road to me were just as fascinating as any of of, uh, the top build stars experiences. No, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I think you absolutely nailed that. And you know, I often have this being involved just in loving movies and loving to hear and research about the making of movies. When there are superlative films by superlative filmmakers like this, you know, maybe like a uh, Zodiac from David Fincher that, you know, films that perhaps do well, but don't really get the credit, maybe that the craft and the making that went into them always deserves it's sometimes kind of overwhelming. It's like contemplating the universe when you think of all the things that have to happen and go right for a movie to really be great. And you're right. It isn't any just one person, but let's talk about George Miller a bit because I find him in your book. So fascinating. When I tell people who don't know about George Miller about George Miller and I get to the part where I say, yeah. And he directed, you know, all the Mad Max movies and also Lorenzo's oil and also Babe, Pig in the City, and Happy Feet. They're like, what? What are you talking about? Like, that's as if I'm describing a particularly rare insect with iridescent wings. They want to know more. Tell us a little bit about George's unique background as a director. I mean, he really is a unique person. Not just that resume, but he is both forthcoming and sweet and warm and accessible and also hard to know and and mysterious. You know, I, I, I was just told that Charlize has read the book and, and really responded to it, which, you know, I was that's great. Very curious. But that but that the number one thing that she enjoyed about it is she felt it brought her closer to George, who she still regards as something of an enigma. And I think Hollywood does, too, because when you hear that resume, I think you're probably uh, the the layman's initial reaction would be the guy who did Mad Max did <laughs> Babe and Happy Feet. 
what I think they don't realize is that if you met George, you would think mm. it the opposite direction. You would be like, oh, this is definitely the guy who did Happy Feet and and Babe. And, and it's harder to make the connection that this like, you know, very kindly, grandfatherly, not particularly physically imposing person with, you know, a mild Australian lilt in his voice could possibly be the person who makes, you know, sometimes a literally sort of fire breathing action film. And I think maybe because of that and also because of the eccentric way that he got into the business because he started as a doctor, I think people perpetually underestimate him. I mean, even if you go back to the very first Mad Max movie, half that crew was ready to stage a coup because they thought he couldn't possibly see it through. In fact, sometimes George wondered if he could. And you see that that happens all the time to him. You know, it happens. It happened on that, but it's happened on other movies, which is of Eastwick. He had a lot of problems with that cast. Uh, he's had studio problems, you know, countless times. He sued Warner Brothers when they booted him off of contact. And, you know, obviously <laughs> Fury Road was not a simple process. It took about 20 years, many studios and fell through all the time. Production was getting shut down. I think people think that they can run roughshod over George Miller. I think he has that sort of deceptive personality. And what they find is they cannot, that he has a total spine of steel, that he will, even in the face of, you know, a movie being shut down several times and, and all these things going wrong, still have that desire, that very unabashed desire to see it through to completion. I don't know that any normal person could have done that. You know, I think you have to have a very unshakable confidence in yourself, but you also maybe have to have a weirdly expansive and yet circumscribed view of your world. You have to have blinders on. You can't be distracted by all these people who say no. And I think any normal person would, and maybe should in some cases, you know, uh, be able to sort of take in outside criticism or reaction. And he just never, ever let it get to him. I found that to be the sort of interesting spine, but also the mystery of the book that I want to unravel. How can you possibly be that person? I mean, you know, I, I, I delayed you one day when we were supposed to tape this podcast. Imagine <laughs> if I delayed you for 20 years, I, I think you would have given up, you know, and, uh, and yet, and yet George Miller would not have. Yeah, it's funny. I, I don't I don't remember where I saw it. It might have been in the making of feature on the black and chrome edition of the DVD of the movie. But he says something about you have to avoid the panic that exists every day from innumerable people on your film set. And I was just reading that and thinking, you know, I run a production company. I deal with productions all the time. I have moments of that I guess I do a little of that, but I am very susceptible to that as any human being would be. Right. Somebody comes to you and says, this is going, this is all wrong. This is terrible. This is a disaster. You know, it's, it, for me, it's very hard not to plug into that energy. And I kept thinking in reading your book, how many times George Mill was able to just kind of rise above that and even talk about it. the way he talks about it in your book. I mean, what I mentioned is kind of like contemplating the universe. If you take any of the, I think what, 130 shoot days, or I don't remember what hundred shoot days there's, there are however many stunts, any one of which is the absolute lead insane stunt on any other movie. And every day they're doing these. Mm -hmm. It's insane. It's incredible. I don't want to ask you, go back to the, the contact story, because I thought that was so great. And I, I know my listeners love this type of thing. How do Jodie Foster and the movie Contact connect to George Miller, even being able to think about making Fury Road? 
George Miller's career, there are fewer movies than you'd think. They're all very impactful. But the reason that there are so few is not only because they take so much time to mount, but because he has so many major movies that he tried to make and got ever so close to making, and they fell apart for one reason or another. I mean, he was supposed to do a Justice League version. Army Hammer would have played Batman. And that truly fell apart as they were in Australia. It was all cast, ready to shoot. Contact, he was going to make with Jodie Foster, and they just never quite, him and the studio never quite got on the same page about how sort of esoteric the movie was going to be. I think he had a real push the envelope sensibility there and the studio panicked. And it was also just taking a really long time as he does. And it fell apart and he sued uh, Warner Brothers and in the settlement got the rights to Mad Max back uh, because they had them at that point. So that to me sounds like he won to get something that valuable or did Warner brothers devalue what they had in the rights to the Mad Max franchise? Well, it's interesting because around that time, Warner brothers television was interested in potentially doing a syndicated TV show of Mad Max. And, you know, this was very pre prestige era. This is literally them saying, you know, it would be a good Xena Hercules type show, Mad Max. So I think that gives you a sense of how sort of devalued that property was. They hadn't seen a Mad Max movie in a while at that point. Mel Gibson, obviously, was his stardom was launched with Mad Max. But you've got to remember that like kind of peak Mel Gibson came after he made those three movies. You know, that's when he started doing Lethal Weapon and everything else. So he had become a megastar since making those movies. And though, you know, they'd launched him and George Miller, I don't know that everybody thought there was still gas in that tank to use, you know, one of many unavoidable uh, automotive metaphors. You know, even when they were supposed to make it in 2003 with Mel Gibson still starring, again, at the peak of his fame, Fox got cold feet. They said, I don't know that we should be spending all this money. Like, do people still care? Mm. Which makes it even crazier that they were able to do that, you know, later on with Tom and Charlize. And then certainly at that point, plenty of people at Warner Brothers thought nobody's interested in this film. You know, the box office returns were not Avengers level by any means or even half that because people hadn't really been you know, the the mainstream viewer uh, had not been checking for that franchise in forever. Mm -hmm. For as influential as Miller's post-apocalypse was, you know, I I think that if you think of cinematic sort of dystopias, you think of Ridley Scott's Blade Runner and you think of George Miller's Wasteland. But for as influential as it was, the whole um, idea of the property was not something that like younger viewers had much of a connection to if any, if anything, I mean, you know, unless you were a film geek who knew your history uh, and, and were watching the older Mad Max movies, it, it was not a franchise that had a lot of, you know, resonance. You know, what you weren't seeing it, it wasn't the sort of thing where, like, you know, right. it was based off comic books. And so those were keeping the flame of Mad Max alive. Now, the, the, the real resonance it had since those three movies were made were all the imitators. In the pre-production process, George and his collaborators, I don't know if stumbled upon is the right word, but they ended up using a very unique way of creating a script in quotes for Fury Road. What was that? And what impact do you think that decision had on the eventual making of the film for better and for worse? The entire script 
was not a script. It was storyboards. It was thousands of storyboards. They were, uh, in order to read, uh, in quotes, that script, you would go to uh, a conference room in Sydney where the storyboards were placed from left to right and George would walk you through them. And it was every shot of the movie, you know, an incredibly novel way to have put this film together and, you know, a testament to, you know, uh, the incredible visual sensibility that he's got and that the movie's got, but not everybody can read a movie that way. Even John Seale, the cinematographer, when he came into that conference room and looked at everything, he just sort of gave up and he's like, well, I trust you. And the actors didn't always, you know, if you're just showing them storyboards and all George is shooting is, you know, an incredibly brief shot from the storyboards, these actors want to get a scene on their feet. They want to play it the whole way through. They want to do a couple minutes of something and feel like you're using the best moments. You're just telling Charlize, turn to the left and put your hand on the steering wheel. It's not necessarily an edifying artistic experience for her, you know? Um, but George knew down to those very specific storyboarded shots what he wanted. And I think that the, you know, it's a testament to that, that, the film is so great. And that if you go back and you look at some of those storyboard sequences, as I was lucky enough to do, it really is incredible that 15 years after they were conceived, some of those truly still do remain shot for shot for shot, what they had had in mind, you know, and it's also probably a clue to how George kept that flame alive for so long when the movie kept getting shut down, which is if it was playing on a loop in his head and it was, and he was seeing all those things from those storyboards that are in that movie that he knew it was a masterpiece. He just had to be able to convince other people. And that was the tricky part. You know, if you have to get people to fly down to Sydney and let you walk them through it, that's not the easiest way to convince people. There's no conventional way that he could convince people. At one point he even did commission, I had to cut this part from the book, but he did commission the screenwriter, John Colley, who did Master and Commander. Oh, really? to write kind of a conventional screenplay version of uh, Fury Road. Uh, and John was nice enough to send it to me and it reads really well, but they didn't use it. <laughs> you know, like the version of the movie that George had was in those storyboards for better and for worse. So he didn't even want to have that script just like for the actors. I mean, cause it sounds a lot like the actors particularly had some difficulty with that part of the process and I just wonder, even if they just had that, but I guess maybe George knows that if you had that, maybe you end up shooting that or working from that, or it gives the actors more information than he wanted them to have. I don't know. But if you read that script, it's like, you know, full scenes that are written out and they know, and they really hardly ever shot legit full scenes, you know, as, as one of the makeup artists, uh, hair and makeup artists said, you could be certain that if you don't see the back of somebody's head in those storyboards, you weren't going to see it in the film. All he needed to shoot were those isolated, discrete, sometimes mm. millisecond long shots. And I think the screenplay implies that they're going to be shooting lengthy scenes and they just never did. And, you know, that's part of why the actors were anxious and frustrated. But again, it's a tribute to somebody like Charlize that she could find mm. the core of her character and be able to return to it no matter the length of the shot or no matter how confused or anxious she was about how it would fit into a greater whole, she could tap into Furiosa. And that's why that performance feels incredibly coherent, even though the shooting process of it was anything but. Put that one back. 
Now, in this pod, we talk a lot about alternative casting. Who were some of the actors considered for those parts before Charlie's and Tom were cast? I mean, I'm obsessed with alternative <laughs> casting. So that's part of the fun for me is getting to do a big mm-hmm. casting chapter and talking to everybody. Well, when it was the Mel Gibson incarnation, they were looking at people like Uma Thurman for Furiosa. Monica Bellucci, I think, was thrown around. Ironically, Tom Hardy auditioned then, but to play a war boy. That's Hollywood. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, then that fell apart right. right as they were about to start shooting. They had to melt down all the cars. It was, you know... Uh, a, a real blow to the fortunes of the movie, but George kept that flame alive. And over the years, he talked to Heath Ledger before he passed away about starring as Max. He talked to Eminem about starring as Max, which would have been wild. And Eminem was down to do it. His only stipulation was that they had to shoot in Detroit, which obviously was never going to happen because this is a desert movie. And then for the rest of the roles, they were looking at people like uh, Jessica Chastain, who auditioned for Furiosa, Gal Gadot got very far into the process, probably would have been Furiosa if they hadn't offered it to Charlize and had her accept. And then, you know, even just down the line, like they cast a really wide net for the wives, uh, the actresses who played the five sex slaves, uh, to the point where they were getting a lot of future superstars in there, like Margot Robbie and Jennifer Lawrence, even Rihanna came in and met with George. So it's always just so tempting to think about gosh, how different would it be if, if any of those things had happened? But, you know, I think ultimately the movie got the cast that it needed and it, it minted a lot of superstars itself. I mean, Tom, when he auditioned for this film, was not an A-list superstar. In fact, the film got pushed so often that he started to become one. But when they hired him, they were making a bet. You know, he hadn't had Inception come out. He was only even able to do The Dark Knight Rises because... Uh, Fury Road got pushed again. So by the time they started shooting, he had become a, you know, a significant star in the making. And I think that did somewhat impact the vibe on set and, and how he behaved. You know, the episode we did before this is on Blade Runner and on the on the iTunes version of the final cut of Blade Runner, you can watch casting outtakes from a couple of other actors they were considering for the Rachel part, Sean Young's part, uh, and then also for the Pris part the Daryl Hannah part. And it's so weird to watch almost fully realized scenes with other actors than the ones we now identify with these parts. I almost, I'm like, I want to watch it. I have to watch it, but I also almost feel weird watching it because it's, it's like an alternative universe of something that could have happened that no, you know, no fault of those actors themselves. Uh, They just weren't, they weren't right in some indefinable, indescribable way. That's I think why, we we like to read about movies and we like to to you know talk about them is because what's the thing that someone's looking for when they're right and i think in your book it's the nicholas holt character that george like didn't really feel nicholas holt at all and it was i think his casting director who was like no 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 and stayed with that and and that is such a yeah. when i watched the movie again just the other day his part is so essential to the overall movie um and i think he's such a such a very important part of the casting He's great. He had never done anything like that. You know, he was still known as the kid from About a Boy and had, you know, eventually turned into a pretty handsome looking guy. So they were trying to slot him into a lot of leading men things where he was honestly kind of a boring presence. Mm -hmm. He's a character actor. He really is in, in in a body that turned out to be, you know, fairly handsome and standard looking leading man material. And I think they just didn't see that in him. He'd never, you know, 
had anyone see that sort of thing in him. And honestly, also, he's tall and Tom Hardy's not that tall. I think that uh, George was thinking about that physicality. You got to think about that. Yeah, you have to think. Yeah. No, you do. I mean, even even when he cast Tom, he Tom was sort of unofficially cast until they got him in the same room with Charlize because they wanted to see, mm. okay, so what is that physical thing? Let's get them on screen and and see, does this work? And it did. And, you know, even to the point where Rana Kress, the casting director, said that after that meeting, she saw Tom and Charlize in the parking lot and she was pulling her <laughs> car out and she just got so lost staring at them that she rammed her car into a pole. <laughs> you know, that's that's screen chemistry. And listen, it was very combustible between the two of them. But on screen, mm-hmm. that that works to their benefit. Yeah. And as I mentioned, there, a lot of ink has been spilled over the understandably juicy details of the supposed feud between Charlie's Throne and Tom Hardy. And your book, as I said, presents a really nuanced portrait of different acting styles. And it includes, I think, really deeply personal mea culpas from both parties or all parties, even including George, I think. Mm-hmm. So considering Charlie's Tom and George, what are their respective parts in this drama that occurred during the filming? Well, like you said, they have very different methods. Charlize is very by the book and professional. She will show up at 8 a.m. if that's the call time. She Mm -hmm. will cry out of her left eye every single time if that's what you're asking her to do. Um, She is that good and that dialed in. And then you, you wrap for the day and she goes home. Tom is not like that. Tom does not show up on time. Tom shows up when he wants to show up and everyone's waiting on him half the time. When he gets there, he doesn't always know what he's going to do. He has a method of acting that he calls sort of failing towards the truth, where he's very willing to fall flat on his face and do cartoonish things or things that are wrong until he gets to the place that's right. And I think if you've been waiting for him on set for a couple hours, that is not necessarily an approach that's going to rub you the right way. You want to just knock it out and get to it. So already there was that kind of combustible difference in approaches. They're both incredible movie stars and actors, but they don't go about it the same way at all. And then, you know, combined with the fact that this whole enterprise rides on them, their, their faces are the ones on the posters. And if this movie was a huge flop, it would you know, be a big blow Mm. to both of their careers and they would have to uh, own that more than most people. So if they didn't know what they were making, that's a lot of anxiety uh, that was often aimed at one another. And I think with George, you know, George, George said that if he could do it differently, he would go back and and be more mindful of it. But like you said, he was very focused on safety Uh, on the second Mad Max film. There was a really bad injury. In fact, the stunt is still in the movie because it's pretty crazy looking that I think has always haunted him. In fact, that stunt performer uh, from the second Mad Max movie, Guy Norris, is the stunt coordinator for Fury Road. So they absolutely knew what they could and couldn't get away with, but they pushed it. They pushed it every day with very dangerous stunts that were not shot on, you know, a green screen in a studio or, or computer generated. They were done for real. You feel that, but that's a whole lot to be, you know, in charge of. And George was in charge of it. So he spent a lot of time on that safety. I also just do think, you know, George is a really interesting person to talk to. Sort of feels like you're talking to a treasured college professor, for better and for worse. He's so thoughtful, philosophical. He knows so much about so many things. 
But sometimes I think you want him to just dial into the thing you asked or to be simple or to recognize your energy and, and to match you on that when he's mm. having a conversation. And that's not always easy to do. Sometimes his head is in those clouds, you know, that frustrated Charlize sometimes because she would ask him a question and he would go into a very long professorial monologue that didn't necessarily get her practically closer to where she wanted to be. And I, I think sometimes George has recognized this about himself. You know, the third Mad Max movie, Beyond Thunderdome, he co-directed with George Ogilvie. That was in part because his producing partner at the time, this guy, Byron Kennedy, had unfortunately passed away just as they were about to start shooting. And it was, you know, shook him a lot. Don't think he thought he had the capabilities to take that on by himself. But also the delegation of duties in that co-direction gig were basically that George would do all the action and, you know, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And his co-director would deal with the actors. And I think that maybe indicates that George knows one of his weaknesses is just sort of being able to convey this mysterious thing in his head in a mm. short, succinct way to the talent. Uh, mm. You know, he has trusted lieutenants and department heads who get him and who trust him. But I think for for higher actors who haven't worked with him before, they don't always know or trust his method. The the most convincing way George can tell you what he wants to tell you is literally to make the movie and then show it to you. There's a great quote from him in the book I want to just read. He says, quote, it's like composing a bit of music and you're taking each note and each chord and you're putting them together in some way, but you don't really hear the full piece until it's all fine-tuned towards the end. And he's talking about making a movie. And I think what Tom and Charlize were asking for in their different, in their completely different ways was to know all about this symphony when George is really focused on the chords and the notes. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, listen, some people can read that sheet music. They could mm -hmm. read the sheet music of those storyboards being late and, and, and get it. And some people just don't have that ability um, and we're stumped by it. I think that George also, you know, it's one thing when you're, when you're getting hired to be in the movie and you're excited and it's a career moment for you. And it, and it really was that for both Tom and Charlize. Right. And you're just probably like, yeah, that's all great. I'm, I'm in good hands. I trust George. I'm going to do it. But then of course you get, you know, to the Namibian desert for seven months and you're being asked to do a very different type of acting than I think both of these actors were used to doing, as you mentioned. And it's insane to think about George is directing them. And literally it's like, okay, just turn your head to the left and turn the steering wheel left. Okay. My next shot is you're going to, you're going to shift the truck into third gear. The next shot is your foot is going down. Like there's no scenes, there's no dialogue scenes. There's no extended character moments. I can imagine that was incredibly frustrating for them. But the other thing is, is that Tom and Charlize read, you know, in quotes, on screen, everything you really want the audience to know about these characters, just by being on screen. Like, and we didn't know as much about them then as we do now, as you say, but I think he casted, they cast, you know, Rana, uh, his casting director, they casted perfectly well so that much of that exposition, I think, is done, right? And also... He can play off the Mad Max that we, the, the backstory that the audience already knows sitting there in the theater. He doesn't have to explain all that again. 
Well, that's an interesting thing. And that took a little bit of calibration. I, I do agree that I think, you know, this movie is deceptively simple just as a log line, mm-hmm. but there's so much under the surface and the same is true of the characters that you sense that there is more, that you sense that there are, mm-hmm. there is depth and really interesting themes at play. And certainly, you know, one of the privileges of, of writing the book is you get to really ask about those things that are under the surface and they exist. So it's a movie that uh, really much withstands, invites, and celebrates your scrutiny because there's stuff, there's so much there. Well, I was going to say, it's also amazing that for all of his self-admitted kind of, I don't know if it's a difficulty in talking with actors or, as you said, a focus on all these other things he has to pay attention to, but he also does two amazing things in this movie with kind of background cast. So with the War Boys you know, tell me about the work he asks Nadia Townsend to do. And then also I was like, why Eve Ensler has something to do with Fury Road. That just blew my mind. Tell me about both of those choices. Those are such amazing things for the director to decide to do. I think Nadia Townsend is credited as an assistant dramaturge. Uh, George actually, you know, this is a relationship we understand from theater, if at all, but the idea of a dramaturge kind of like not just a muse, but somebody who's sort of like challenging you and a co-author who's bringing something different who's attacking the themes and ideas of the piece. George works with this uh, writer, Nico Lothuris, who's one of the credited writers on Fury Road and considers Nico to be his dramaturge. Nadia was his assistant, you know, this young woman on the verge of turning 30 who got to Namibia before George and Nico and was basically assigned these dozens of rowdy stuntmen (laughs) to turn into war boys, uh, you know, and she did really unconventional acting classes with them. These people who by and large, you know, haven't ever acted or weren't ever asked to act and whip them into such a fervor ultimately that, I mean, I think you sense that when you're watching it because the war boys are so beyond, but also it became a real thing that animated that whole production because those war boys lived as war boys, (laughs) you know, they screamed, they whooped, they cheered each other. They got each other hyped. And when, you know, you're someone like Zoe Kravitz, who's in the back of a, a war rig, uh, you know, for hours on end. And it's literally driving. It's literally in the desert. And you literally are surrounded by screaming war boys who never turn it off. You just start to be like, OK, well, I'm in the world of the movie. You know, if you're a method actor like Tom is or if you're not, it, it makes no difference. The world of the movie and the conflicts of the characters are bleeding into your real life, you know. And often that's encouraged, uh, like it was with the War Boys and like it was when Eve Ensler came on board. You know, she's the writer of the vagina monologue. She's an activist. And she came on board. She was brought on board by George to sort of give the actresses who play the wives a real world understanding of, of you know, uh, sex savory and and what you would feel if you had escaped that sort of captivity. They would do all sorts of workshops and exercises like writing letters to their captor or talking about experiences from their own lives. You know, I think Riley Keough gives the quote in the book of, you know, it could have just been, you know, girls in bikinis in the desert and George didn't ever want it to be that for his, you know, uh, there are just things that pass by in the blink of an eye and roles that aren't even named. And so much thought went into all of those things as it did with the props, the cars, you know, he would ask, what is the backstory behind this? And you had to have it. And he really encouraged every single person on this movie, whether they were a prop maker or an actress, 
to find that ownership over what they were doing in that character, which I think is part of the reason that it feels textured and it feels much deeper than the sort of thinner characterizations and thinner images that you get in a lot of movies in this genre. Now, you mentioned Guy Norris before, and you also mentioned giving the reader an experience of what it's like to be on a film set. I was really struck by the anecdote in your book about the first, so the other amazing thing about Fury Road, they shot the film in sequence, which is, you know, kind of insane unto itself in terms of managing a film shoot. Like typically directors and studios would insist on uh, a certain efficiency. So if we're going to use this set a couple of times in the movie, we're going to obviously shoot everything there first before we move somewhere else. But that's not the way they did it on Fury Road, which much like the Evensler and the Warboy stuff, I think really does contribute to the sense that we get watching the film. But there's this great anecdote about, you know, Guy Norris, who's the stunt coordinator on Fury Road. And the very first, what a stunt person would call a gag uh, on the film is when Max's car is being pursued and it flips and rolls about nine times in the desert. And Guy Norris is not a young man and was the, you know, the he's the boss, as the stunt guy says in your book. And I just loved his the, the quotes of a couple of those guys, um, you know, the way they describe it as like one of the gnarliest stunts on the movie. And it, it, you can feel how in their retelling, and this is the strength of the oral history approach to me, you can just feel through the various people talking about being on set that day, that that set a tone. How did that kind of play out? I think you're exactly right. And I, I think that's the sort of thing where you wonder if there can be another movie like this, because not just because, these things are usually sort of taken care of in computers or sound stages, but because you have somebody like Guy Norris who has been around the block, who has that age and experience and has been doing this for a long time back in the days where there really weren't any rules about it. So stuntmen would do incredibly dangerous things that would injure them all the time that he had that real world knowledge that, you know, a lot of very talented stunt coordinators these days just simply don't possess because they haven't, had that time that they haven't been around the block for as long as guy has. And I don't know. I, I think, I think everyone felt that on set in a way that you feel when you watch it. I remember mm -hmm. the first time I watched it, you know, just some random war boy falls off the war rig fairly early <laughs> on in the movie. And I just sort of like jumped in my seat. Cause I thought I'd watched a snuff film. It was yeah. such a visceral thing. And again, a complete throwaway moment with a character who maybe isn't even named in the movie. And it felt real, you know, and that's mm -hmm. the thing. All those things feel incredibly real in a way that it simply doesn't when you watch Fast and Furious or something. In, in the latest yeah. Fast and Furious movie, I saw a behind the scenes thing about this shot that they did do for real where, you know, this car smashes through uh, a zillion walls in this shop. And the thing is, when you watch it in the movie, you don't believe it. Uh, it looks like mm -hmm. CGI and it also looks that way because it's contextualized by a ton of CGI stunts. So mm. your eye is already not quite believing what you see. And it was important to them on Fury Road that a lot of the very first things you see and indeed throughout the whole movie are done for real and have elements mm. that are done for real so that you always buy into it. And it's also like such this, what's amazing about the, the, the attention paid to the Volvolini stuff or the Warboy stuff is like, let's not forget, these are Australian males. Like you mentioned rowdy before there's rowdy oh, yeah. and then there's like Australian male rowdy, which is a whole <laughs> other degree of insanity and drinking and toughness and 
you know, there are amazing stories about just stuff that we would be, you know, hospitalized for months with. And like Australian stunt guys are just, you know, walking it off. Like Guy Norris, I think they, they were going to do that stunt and somebody preparing their car said, oh, no, we can't do it. Uh, the brake pedal doesn't work. And he said, well, we're not going to be using the brakes, are we? I said, no. He's like, okay. Yep. Exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> and again, it's just, you know, things that other movies wouldn't dare to try. I'm very excited to see what they accomplished with Furiosa um, yeah. because I think people will have faith that they can pull it off now. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure that they will be testing their limits on that too. And again, mm -hmm. you, you know, this is Fury Road was such an immediately iconic movie, but I almost hesitate to call it influential because I just don't think there's room for it to be anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, mm -hmm. who's letting other people get away with any of this? Who has the expertise <laughs> to know that they could get away with it. You know, it's, it's so yeah. its own thing um, that the only people that could really be influenced by it or follow in its own footsteps are that they themselves, people like George Miller and, and Guy Norris. Well, if this movie had been shot on the Warner brothers, you know, back lot, they probably would have been shut down. I mean, there's no way they could have got away with these stunts. Well, they shut Except it down for, anyway. So <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> you know. But you're right. I mean, it's there is no way this would ever get made today. I mean, it just even with the success that it had, the Oscars and all of the all of the ways that it came through. One of the other astounding details was uh, talking about the film's reception. I want to ask you a couple of things about that. George's wife, who edited the film had never edited an action movie before this, which is full stop insane. Yeah, she'd never edited action before. That is that is ridiculous that not only did she do, I mean, edit probably the greatest action film ever made. I mean, I can't think of another film that has as much wall-to-wall, -wall, over the top, insane, jaw-dropping action as Fury Road does. I mean, that she never edited that. Every film, as you know, has its own, type of editing language. It's just, that's an incredible kind of glossed over fact to me, just because she's so unassuming and self-deprecating and such a great presence, I think, in the book and some of the featurettes that I've watched too. I agree. She's terrific. And, and I think, you know, that sensibility worked in the favor of the film that she didn't just toss it into a Cuisinart like, like a lot of people do who edit action, where it's just, you know, chaotic coverage. Every single shot had to feed into the next in this really purposeful through line way that makes the whole thing feel coherent instead of just, you know, uh, too daunting to make sense of. And, mm. you know, uh, as George says, she has a very low boredom threshold. So she it's really important to her to keep, you know, that forward momentum going, sometimes very literally in the way that shots are strung together. There's always a very causal dynamic to those sequences. And I think that's why they play so well. I mean, I can still put it on and, and get wrapped up in it and track everything, you know, where everybody is relative to one another, you know, distance location, you know, when someone is gaining on somebody, these are things that you, that should be bare minimum in an action sequence. And yet I can't tell you how many modern films fall down in, in portraying any of those things, you know, Absolutely. I, I think it also helps, George has a George knew how fast he wanted this edit to be. And so because of that, he shoots all, the subject of, of the shot almost always in the dead center so that mm. the audience's eyes don't have to dart around to find what's important. I mean, mm -hmm. you'll find a lot if you're willing to look uh, on the outskirts of the frame. 
But he knows that if you're going to create that through line through a really hectic sequence, you know, you have to shoot for it and you absolutely have to have the right editor for it. Yeah. And he did. I mean, incredible. Mar- Margaret Sixtel, is that her name? Sixel, yeah. Sixel, yeah. She's incredible. A well-earned Academy Award. Another moving moment in your book, I actually was was pleased to see that it. it's captured on video. And you tell the story of of how the film's premiere at the Cannes Film Festival is this like kind of triumphant moment. And then there's this incredible moment between Tom Hardy and George at the press conference. Tell us about that moment. Tom had finally seen the movie and got it for the very <laughs> first time, you know, and it had been a little while at this point since they'd shot the bulk of the film. They came back for an additional shoot in Sydney, but, you know, he tinkered for a long time. I don't know if Tom thought, you know, this was going to be a big blemish that he was going to have to disavow. But when he saw it, he got it and he apologized to George at the Cannes press conference, which is never the sort of thing that you expect to see a star do at a place like that in public. You know, I think also one of the indications of to the rest of us that there was a lot more that had gone down <laughs> behind the scenes than we were being privy to. I suddenly got what George was talking about, actually, because for seven months, the, I think the most complicated piece for me and the most frustrating thing for me or the hardest part of it was trying to know what George wanted me to do at any given minute, on a minute-by-minute basis so that I could fully transmute his vision. But because he's orchestrating such a huge vehicle, literally, um, in so many departments, and every his signature is on every single detail of that, and because the vehicle is, and all the vehicles are moving, and the whole, the, the whole movie is just motion, um, there was no way that I realized, and I feel I, I have to apologize to you because I got frustrated. And um, there was no way that George could have explained what he could see um, in the sand when we were out there. And because of the due diligence that was required to make everything safe and to make everything, which is incredibly complex, um, so simple, and what I saw, which is a relentless barrage of um, complexities simplified in a, in a, in a, in a fairly linear uh, story, I, I, I mean, I knew he was brilliant but I, I didn't quite know how brilliant until I saw that. That's my first reaction was, oh, oh my God, I, I owe George an apology for being so myopic. Yeah, you know, it's a fascinating thing to talk to the people who worked on this movie because half of them consider this, you know, one of the greatest creative endeavors of their lives and they would have, they would still be on that set if they were allowed. And half of them, it was so difficult and they were so worried and anxious that they can't watch it without feeling those things again. You know, sometimes Mm -hmm. those are both those things are true too, which makes things even more uh, complicated. Um, So it was interesting to hear from all sorts of people. I I, I think probably most of the actors felt uh, somewhat similar to Tom. They got it for Mm -hmm. the first time when they saw it for the first time, but you know, there were people, whether they were department heads or, um, or not, who did key into what George was doing. And I think just had a incredible celebratory experience. One of, one of my favorite subjects in the book is this uh, visual effects data wrangler named Shyam Toast Yadav. Toast, um, yes. And he is, he became the person that I wanted to tell the first day of shooting story through mm. uh, because he has a, a really wonderful perspective as, as the sort of Mad Max fan who even went into Hollywood because he was so influenced by Mad Max and because he hoped they would make another movie someday. 
So even though you, I think, would probably expect that chapter to be told through George's eyes or one of the actors, he ends up being a really fantastic narrator for it, in part also because there's a wonderful surprise. I don't want to mm-hmm. spoil it. That happens at the very end of the first day to Toast. That's really striking. And he just had so much enthusiasm for the movie at all times, which I think a lot of people needed to draw from. He tells the story of, mm. you know, Warner Brothers would send down executives all the time and they would have to sit in this uh, car with Toast because there was the only other car that had a spare seat. So they'd be going around, you know, witnessing all these action stunts and all this carnage. And the Warner Brothers executive would be like, how's all this going? And Toast is the most enthusiastic narrator. So he'd be like, what do you mean? How's it going? This is the best experience of my life. I mean, look around, the guitar (laughs) shoots flames. Look at that stunt. Look at all that. And of course, you know, they have very different concerns in mind, but he just was having the time of his life. So, you know, that's why it was a really fascinating thing. A couple of years on, you know, I started talking to people about five years from, from removed from the movie in, in 2020. Yeah. And I think that was exactly the right amount of time to let, you know, the dust settle uh, literally and figuratively so that people could look back on that and still feel that it was very fresh. I, I think it was such a vivid experience. It can't help but still be fresh. But they had the right amount of distance to go there. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought about that, but you, but but waiting that amount of time is so is so important, really, because I can't even imagine processing this experience uh, within three years after it, because you really have to read the book to understand what these people were not subjected to, because it's a film set. But I mean, it is not an ordinary film set, and I don't think there has ever been a film shot and produced this way, or you know, until it's another until Furioso or some of the other projects that I've seen, you know, on IMDb that George is involved with that obviously must stem from the success of this film. So it's great that they were vindicated and it was amazing. As we know, all this talk about the Academy Awards, how do we fix the Academy Awards? How do the Academy Awards pay attention to popular movies instead of kind of ignoring films like Spider-Man, but they paid attention to Fury Road and it was nominated for Best Picture. And I think it won six Academy Awards, although George didn't win Best Director. Do you think that that meant that that sort of industry uh, appreciation, I know it always means something to filmmakers commercially, but is George and his band of, you know, miscreants and emotive personalities, the type of people that would care about those types of things or not? Yes and no. I think George is a lot more moved by the regular moviegoers mm-hmm. reaction. Mm-hmm. I think it was uh, certainly uh, a more pleasurable thing than not that it reg- resonated in such a major way that he got to see people, including his wife, accept Oscars. Uh, you know, George had won an Oscar already for Happy Feet. So he's been down the block. He's done the Oscar campaigning thing. And I think, you know, as he says, nobody involved in this movie ever thought that there would be an Oscar season involved. You know, even Warner Brothers executives that, uh, you know, were, were backing much more traditional Oscar fare like Black Mass with Johnny Depp. It was a very late in the game pivot for them to be like, that's not working. And actually the movie that Oscar voters keep telling us that they love is Fury Road. You know, you alluded to it at the beginning of of this podcast, but you don't always get to see films like that that are so immediately iconic be recognized by the Oscars. Sometimes they are a little bit behind the ball. So 
I think it was a really gratifying thing. The The only thing that I feel like they really missed out on is Charlize absolutely deserved a Best Actress nomination that year. And I think just because she wasn't really available to, you know, make the case herself and, and talk about it. You know, sometimes you need that phase two sort of recontextualization of the movie to say, no, here's why it's deeper than you thought or let me tell you more about what went into it. And I think if she'd been there and been available and Warner Brothers had been a little more on it from the jump, they could have Mm. gotten that. But yeah, I mean, 10 nominations, six wins, nothing to sniff at at all. And Charlie's, you know, even for all the difficulty that she had on the set and trying to wrap her heads around it, I mean, the performance does ask you, demand that you reassess your understanding of what a film performance is. I mean, it sounded like it did that for her, too. Yeah, it's, it's an and incredible that's... performance. It is, you know, an iconic performance of that genre. Many people have com- have compared it, including James Cameron, to Sigourney Weaver and Aliens, mm-hmm. which actually mm-hmm. was an Oscar-nominated performance. That's another mm-hmm. indication of where they got things right. I think it was right. absolutely on par with that. And uh, yeah, I wish she had gotten in, but, you know, that's that's she recognizes that as one of the biggest performances uh, and most indelible roles she'll ever have. Yeah. So she knows how important it is. And um, I'll let you go on this question, but have you watched the black and chrome version of the film? I have. Yeah. I mean, Uh, I think it's always really interesting to do that. And I welcome any opportunity to see Fury Road in a fresh way. For as many times as I've seen it, I still feel like when I watch it, I'm noticing and responding to different Mm -hmm. things. You know, so the black and chrome version is interesting in how it sort of highlights different things and it gives it a somewhat different feel. However, I do prefer the super saturated, vivid colored uh, theatrical version. I I just think, you know, there are so many movies that these days that um, conflate seriousness with you know, a lack of color and grit Mm -hmm. and dark. And I think it's really exciting actually uh, to make something that is so colorful and vivid as Fury Road. I think it's part of the reason it feels like a movie where anything could happen because Mm -hmm. those colors are so vivid and because the movie is so vivid. It just feels right to me, but it's an interesting thing because I know that when they shot on that location, it was certainly not as vivid looking. It was, you know, a more forbidding, almost Martian landscape. And when Jason Boland, incredible, talented still photographer, was taking photos, they were mostly desaturated. In fact, if you look at the official photos that Warner Brothers sent out, to the end, they are incredibly desaturated pictures that don't look much like what we see in Fury Road at all. It was a, you know, fairly late in the game post-production idea for it to be as colorful and as vivid as it is. But that's, that is uh, a major X factor thing. I think that makes the movie really sing. Well, you said it colorful, vivid, a sense that anything can happen. That's really the experience I think readers are going to have when they dive into your book. I think you did an incredible job. You managed to do something new in this genre of, kind of behind the scenes making of oral histories. Uh, I highly, highly recommend everybody pick this book up. Uh, You won't be disappointed. And Kyle, thank you so much for coming on making time for this. I know you've got a lot of more important media obligations to do than this podcast, but I really appreciate it. And I know that my listeners will as well. So thank you again so much for agreeing to do this. I really, really appreciate it. Well, it was a great conversation. So I was happy to. Great. We'll have you on again for your next book. Yes, please do. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Jason. 